You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Bracken, you're looking like a teenage boy over there. Uh, you got a few zits on your face. In a whole year of this podcast, I've never seen one zit on your face, and I think I count three. Oh, it's right back to freshman year. What happened? <laughs> why? why? I, I did a hard workout on Saturday, and with the wind chill, I was like negative 16, and I was so dry afterwards. My skin was just scaly, and I just slathered lotion on my face without thinking because it just it hurt after my shower. And next day... All these little pimples and zits popped up. That was a really good audio, actually. We didn't enter that, folks. That was Bracken's mouth. Wow. I have a very talented mouth, Kirk. <laughs> we'll stop there. I'm right back to right back to middle school Bracken. High school Bracken. I, I, I didn't mature enough in middle school to get acne. What kind of lotion did you use, man? Was it like lavender vanilla I or something? I think it crazy? was St. Ives. St. Oh. Eve's. And so, it was, yeah, some sort of flower. That's when you that's when you dig into like the wife's like high end face stuff. The stuff that like doesn't do that to you. That's what you I, should have I wouldn't know where to begin. That's why you ask them. I stopped out, I grabbed it, I slathered it on, and I moved on with my day. Mm. But now I'm paying the price. Now I'm paying the price. I gotta look at you for the next hour. <laughs> should I turn my video off? <laughs> no, I like I, this is still what bad. do we have here? One, two, three, and you can't see this one four. I have four. I don't know what you would call them. They didn't whitehead up or anything. They just look, look like a blotch on my face, and it's annoying. It's the worst when you can't pop it. Yeah. I want to pop it. There's there's nothing to pop. Uh, well, my face hurts a little from my run right now, too. Is uh, I didn't start running today until almost 11 o'clock, and it was negative 10 at the start of my run at 11 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, it was negative 19 with the wind chill, but I'll tell you what. I don't know about you, but... I'm getting a lot of people reaching out, not knowing what to do with their training because of this cold weather. Are you? It. The funny thing is that everything is relative in this world, weather included. I posted about a workout that it was like zero degrees when I started, but the windshield was negative 14 or something. And as someone said, oh man, I feel you. And in Texas right now, it's going to be like low 40s today. And I'm debating not going. And then someone messaged me and said, oh, that's cute negative 49 here in Canada. <laughs> and it just made me realize it's all relative. Cold is cold. It's whatever you're used to. Yeah. I, I take screenshots of what the weather is here now so I can throw it back in my athletes' faces when they yes. tell me how cold it is. Uh, just did that to one of my athletes, Kelly, this morning. Kelly, now you're probably going to be running outside because I did that. And and it is true. It's so relative. Uh, did you get um, like like the, the person who sent you the negative whatever, where exactly did they live? They were way up there, like Saskatchewan or something. Yeah. It's the worst. It's like the fighting polar bears. Yeah. We don't have to worry about polar bears down here. It's a good reminder, though, that there's, it's cliche, but there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad gear. Mm -hmm. You have the right gear, you're set. On that negative 16 day, I had to open up my my venting a little bit because I was getting a little bit too sweaty. Um, I'd finished my reps and it was cold in the wind. 
But as soon as I hit my rest period inside this little cove of trees, then I'd start sweating. I had to open up and pull my hat up a little bit so that I didn't get too sweaty so that it wouldn't freeze on the next interval out in the wind. So it's all relative. It's all about that wind, dude. It, I don't even look at the temperature. If it could be negative 20, but if the wind is literally calm, doesn't yeah. matter. It's all about that wind. Um, let's tell the folks uh, as we're getting dialed in here, Bragenstein, what, what uh, quality workouts you're doing this week? This week, I have three. I'm doing, I'm hitting all ends of the spectrum, not all ends, all ends of the quality spectrum. I'm starting tomorrow with very short, very fast treadmill intervals with quick transitions in between. Me too. Oh, Kirk. Wow. So 45 to 60 second intervals with 10 seconds worth of dynamic explosive exercises right in between. Just hop off, hop back on and running um, right around that 3K two mile race pace. Quick. Theoretical. I have no idea what that is, but it's faster than 5K pace, a little bit slower than one mile pace. That's your first one. Okay. My, that's a, I'm doubling. I mean, I'll do a very close version of that tomorrow. We have not talked about this, folks, but yeah, I'll be doing something very similar on the treadmill, on purpose on the treadmill. Yeah. Yeah. Just to force me to jump right into, you know, 440 pace and just hold. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to be jumping into 440 pace bracket. Well, that's why I'm going to beat you in Jacksonville, Kirk. <laughs> What's your next one? Second one would be I'm doing the 30-30 advanced workout, 30 seconds at roughly 3K effort, 30 seconds at threshold. Um, the first two times I did it in rounds of six, rounds of five, rounds of four, and now I'm doing it the true style, which is go until your pace breaks. Okay. And my goal is to hit eight rounds, maybe 10 would be fantastic. To be 10 minutes worth of work. Yeah, and then I'm going to take a full eight, five to eight minutes of recovery. And then I'll do terrible two mile. Nice. And then the third workout of the week will be, um, a race sim. We are three weeks out. And so I'll have two weeks of recovery after that. It's a well-rounded week. Yeah. And I'm setting up a actual three and a half mile, 3.7 mile simulator where I'm going to have grip obstacles. I'm going to have carries. I'm going to have these little mounds that I use to sub in for the motocross mm. section of the course. I don't know whether that's going to be beginning, middle or end of the course. And so I'm going to hit it three times and yeah. really, really go race gear with added layers on top of it. Things the pros do folks, race sims, making it happen getting ready for what the race is going to feel like before the race. I'm taking a little different approach. I'm going to do a carry workout on Thursday um, with a little incline. And then uh, I'm going to hit a traditional, either like a five by a mile this weekend. I'm going to mm. do my first true, like, like I'm going to give myself rest. I'm going to try to just get that turnover going. Uh, maybe a little shorter, but something like that. It's going to happen. So OCR intervals, little carry incline work and um, – some sort of actual first time I'm ever letting myself in all of training, it'll be two weeks out letting myself run fast, which is, you know, I'm, I'm cutting it close. But you that, are cutting it close. But that's the plan. That was my intent. If there was something to show up to race day with for an off trail sloppy race to be lacking in one area, you would want to show up lacking in top end speed. 100%. That's what I've been if you had to If you had to eliminate one thing. Stay power. That's what really is. Yep. It's a 30 minute race still. Um, <laughs> Bracken, you told me not to talk about it, but I'm going to talk about it anyways. I didn't say not to talk about it, but not to guarantee it. Our t-shirts are in guys. And I got them sitting in boxes in my house, waiting to put your address and name on a label, ship it out to you. Bracken, Bracken, what are you running into right now? Uh, lack of talent, training, <laughs> know-how. <laughs> All the above. I set up the storefront on our website a month ago and I had it functioning. You sure did. 
I showed it to Kirk. He tested it out on his end. Everything was sitting there. He could see the sizes of everything. I deactivated it. And then today I worked on reactivating it and I made the new products with the actual pictures that Kirk and Jess modeled for me this weekend. And it's just not visible. <laughs> it's it's visible on my end and it's not showing up to the rest of the world. So I have 24 hours to figure this out. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, I'm a liar. Basically, we're telling you to go look at therunningpublic.com, click on shop, and there may or may not be t-shirts there for you to buy when you're listening to this. Oh, man. It's such pressure now. This is, you know, we got serious with this, and then we'll get into our, our topic, but we bought a professional label maker. I got it all linked up with, like, the postal service, got all the packaging. So we're going to get to put together a nice, clean, like, we're running, like, a shipping business out of the house now. Did you look... At how expensive it is to ship overseas. Yeah, I don't know what we're going to do about that. I think I found a workaround this morning. Not a workaround, but the, our best option this morning. But guys, I love you, but I'm not paying $71 to ship you a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so The fraction of uh, any sort of profit we're going to make on this would be negated by that. Um, yeah, so there's one more thing I was going to add to that, Brack, and I lost my train of thought. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Uh, okay, this is an experiment with t-shirts, guys. We don't know if you're going to buy them or not. So I will tell you that like sizes are limited. Like quantities are limited. If you actually want a shirt, I would highly suggest going and getting it right away. And if you buy one um, and these sell quick, we're going to make a lot more and different designs and women's fit and tank tops and all the stuff you guys are asking for. But we didn't want to lose our ass on buying a bunch <laughs> of shirts. And then I got 400 running public t-shirts to wear myself. Yeah, you already sunk a good chunk of your change into it. There's only so much of a bath we were willing to take. Yeah. Again, we like everyone, but we're not going to lose our house over you guys. Exactly. Exactly. And we have more ideas that we didn't put on shirts quite yet because uh, we just want to make sure that we're not, you know, busting on this one. So buy them soon is what I'm saying. There's not a lot of um, quantity in all of the sizes. This is a test run. If they sell, we'll get more. If they kind of just trickle out the door, we're going to keep trickling inventory in. Exactly. Shall we move on to our topic? We should. Okay. You always make me intro my topics, Kirk. So yeah. I'm going to make you intro your topics. Okay. Well, this is where this topic came up, Rack. And I was doing thrusters at the gym this morning with 70-pound dumbbells. Okay. A lot of weight. And I'm sitting there thinking, I mean, and from my perspective, it's a lot of weight. Some guys, I'm sure it's chunk change. And I'm sitting there looking at myself in the mirror going, do you really need to be doing this shit? Do you need to be doing thrusters with 70 pound dumbbells right now? And then it started getting me thinking about what we talk about frequently on this podcast, or at least hint at, and that is, you know, at what point does strength or muscle size outweigh the cost? How strong do you need to be for OCR or trail running? And I was just looking at myself doing those being like, is that even the right move right now? And I thought we should chat it out today. It's a very, very common question. And it leads into that sticky area of our sport, which is size. Yeah. And size immediately gets translated into weight, which immediately gets translated into emotional attachment. Yeah. And that is, as we've talked to many guests on our show, that is a very slippery slope that people generally fall all the way down once they fall. Um, yeah. wh which slope is that? The trying to get smaller, trying to get bigger? Both. Entering the weight conversation with an emotional attachment to it. Yeah, 100%. So we do want to preface this by saying we are trying to approach this, as always, from the healthiest standpoint possible. 
we are not here to tell you go lose weight to run faster. We're going to debate at what point do you stop needing more muscle and power? Yeah. And I think this is going to be more of a free flowing conversation type day. Yes. Uh, mostly because there's a lot of subjectivity around this, right? Mm -hmm. So I think just prefacing the conversation with that, I'll tell you what, I, I posed the question on my post, like, so, you know, sound off below, what do you think? I got some really good responses from you did. people who had, had thought this stuff out. And a lot of people use people like Hunter McIntyre, for example, and say, no, you can be as big and as strong as you want. But would my counter to that be, well, yeah, but Hunter McIntyre ran 255 in a downhill marathon. And if he was in his Spartan racing form, he'd be running 235. Uh, but mm -hmm. so there's still like, there's a tipping point, correct? There is. And there's the, I said it on the last podcast. I'm going to repeat my same line, but the question always is, are you doing it because of it or despite it? That's the question. And what do you say? Almost impossible to prove when you only have one side of it to look at. So the only way to ever prove this is with yourself and experimentation. Now we like talking about dialing in your metrics, your pacing, your volume, your 80-20 split. Are you 70-30? Are you 90-10? Are you somewhere in between there? We don't often recommend playing around with your weight metrics yep. because again, that leads too close to the edge for too many people. There are people who can just look at their, their pounds or their kilos no different than they look at their pace per mile. And those people would be the exceptions. Most of us are not robots. We are emotionally tied to it. So it's really hard to really play around with it. And so you wind up with coaches who are unhealthy about it or athletes who take it in an unhealthy way. And, and we have to avoid that as athletes. We have to be available. Yep. It doesn't matter if you get to your fastest race weight if you're not available. So today is about debating, not proving. Correct. Yeah, exactly. We don't want to die. We, we want to stay very firmly on one side of this conversation, I think. Which is health. Which is health. Exactly. Correct. Which, which is health. And yeah, I guess health, health leads away. Performance is a byproduct in a sense in this conversation. But um, so, so I guess I'll start this conversation with, you know, one of the, the comments was from Rich Ryan, who we've had on the podcast. And, and his comment was simple. It was, you know, no, strength is not a detriment to performance or endurance performance, as long as you are not replacing your endurance training with your strength work. So you're still doing all of the endurance training that you're planning on. Your strength work is a side or on top of that. And you're still training as primarily an endurance athlete doing all of those things correctly. How do you feel about that? I agree wholeheartedly. Yes. What tends to happen? is that people gravitate towards the workouts they enjoy doing rather than the workouts they should be doing. And sometimes they coincide. Yeah. But oftentimes we keep leaning back to the thing that brings us joy and pleasure rather than the, the workout that will really give us the best bang for our buck. And that's also a tricky conversation because of the people listening, how many are making their living solely off performance? Zero. Yes, very, <laughs> very few, probably single digits. So that means that joy and pleasure need to definitely be a part of your training. But when you can look at someone and say, well, he ran a sub three marathon at 204 pounds. That's my justification that I can hit CrossFit five times a week and I'll be a better runner. You know, that's yeah. where the line blurs. That's a really good point there. I, I think, you know, this is a runner's sport and we're not just talking to OCR athletes. We're talking to trail runners. And from what I understand, even some road runners listen now and, um, it's a it's a runner sport. Like you can't deny the fact, unless you are doing a version of Deca or High Rocks or maybe 
a very short course, you know, obstacle heavy race. It's a runner sport. So the first, the first thing that needs to be explored is yeah, the running has to still be forefront, not replaced in the program. That'd be like step one. Am I doing it right? Well, at least I'm doing like first thing first, those two things have to be squared away. Right. Correct. Yeah. So <clears throat> from there, you know, you mentioned, you, you said in a comment to me, what was it? When we were trying on shirts, you're like, I'm going to be in Jacksonville because I'm racing a bodybuilder. <laughs> yeah. I, was like, I was like, shit, like there, there is a tipping point. Right. And, and rich Ryan made that comment about as long as you're still doing your endurance training, then strength is not a detriment. And I agree with that wholeheartedly as well. But, but what if you are the athlete who is a little bit bigger, whether it is muscle or fat, right? That, that you could probably lose to perform your best. I think we had this conversation. I don't know if we did Bracken, but um, I got tagged in my 2003 WEAC track 1500 meter final race. One of my former teammates put it up on Facebook. The video? Of the video, yep. Oh, I like that. The video. And I was looking at myself run and I was pushing the front end and I ended up fading, taking fifth or something. doesn't matter. But um, And I was looking at myself, I was like, that was, that was me? Like, look, I got no shoulders. I got no body. No wonder I could run that fast. Like, and mm -hmm. I just happened to coincide with the fact that like, I'm like, ah, I should be a little lighter to race fast. So it all came to a head. Right. And so what I'm, when I'm bringing this full circle about Rich's comment is that what if you're not already in your ideal situation and like, how do you, how do you navigate that? Where do you start Bracken? Oh, that's, that's the nearly impossible question to answer is if I do analyze the facts and say, I would be faster if I were smaller. And that's tricky to deal with. Now there's two ways to come from that. The first is where you're at right now, where you've spent all of your injury time, you know, working on your engine, but really prioritizing power. And you know that I probably have a few more pounds of muscle on me than I would normally carry if I were prepping for a fast race. And so to that end, it's easy. You remove some of your strength training or at least some of your sets and your muscle is just going to naturally go down a little bit. That's what I thought. I've, I've gone down to two days a week uh, lifting for the last five months. Okay. <laughs> Four months. It's just staying on baby, but yes, correct. I but agree. then if you look at the equation from the other side, which is I have non-muscle based body weight and I know I'd be faster if I remove some, and, and if you look at it from a strength side, it's I need to remove reps and um, frequency of lifting. Yep, yep. The, the metric on the other side would be calories or frequency of, um, bad food, you know, high sugar content, really unhealthy food, but that's where it becomes tricky. We're a machine. When we think about it with weight plates, I can just remove a plate off there two times per week and I'm good. But when we say, I'm going to remove 500 calories, suddenly we have an emotional attachment to that. And so that's where it's the really hard part where you can't look an athlete in the eye or the computer screen and say, you need to lose 500 pounds each of the next three days. I mean, 500 calories. You need to remove 500 calories each out of the next three days. The same way you would tell them, remove 40 minutes of, of strength training over the next three days. Right. It just can't be delivered in the same manner. No, cannot. So with this conversation then, what it really comes back to, and we say, how strong do you need to be mm -hmm. to, to perform well? There's a fine line. We reference Hobie Call. Um, we had in the past a good bit saying he's probably one of, if not the fastest bucket carrier on any terrain, yet he weighs 145 pounds, yes. right? 
So he's got a lot of go muscle and not a lot of show muscle. What did Hunter McIntyre describe him as? A chicken nugget with legs? Yes. <laughs> really thick torso, great ab development, great mm -hmm. obliques, really strong chest, and then skinny little legs. <laughs> yes. But but point being is like, so then you have that one side where I, I believe when like Hobie won his second world championship in 20, what was that, 16? Something like that. He had like the fastest bucket and sandbag in the whole dang race as probably the lightest top 10 finisher. Mm -hmm. You got guys like Kempson and others in the field who can carry quickly. And Aaron Newell, who's when he's fit, he's light and had this fastest sandbag last year in, in Jacksonville. So the point being is like, where does that, that benefit or cost benefit outweigh the cost, right? Of being strong. Yeah. And I think it's the same question posed two different ways that for a performing athlete, you either want to be the lightest you can possibly be without negative consequences physically, or the heaviest you can possibly be without any negative consequences time-wise. Exactly. And, and I, and that's a, it's the same goal, right? One's just to be as light as physically possible without even approaching anything danger health-wise. And the other is as heavy as possible without approaching any danger speed-wise. It probably puts you in the same weight, but the mindset is very much different. And so for the Olympic level runner, the D1 runner who they're boom or bust, half of them, <laughs> maybe less than half of them really succeed and the other half wind up with eating disorders or, or body dysmorphia or whatever it, it, it manifests as. They're all approaching it from what is the lightest I can possibly be while still getting to the start line. And I think for the rest of us and probably for them as well, but for the, for the general population, the answer or the question has to be posed in the positive light, which is what's the most muscle mass and size I can carry without negatively affecting my running? And that's where I like to start from. That's the million dollar question, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But now that at least frames it. And now you, that's testable. That is testable. That's actually something I didn't even really think about. If you were consistent with your fitness, obviously this, an experiment of sorts would take quite a long amount, amount of time, mm -hmm. right? To, to follow through with. I think the best place to start with this is think about what your race requires and then understand what it's going to take to complete those tasks in an efficient manner, right? I mean, for example, we have to flip a 400 pound tire in a Spartan race. How much of that weight are we actually lifting off the ground, would you say? Half. I would say 250. Okay. Right? So it's not like you need to be able to deadlift 400 pounds to flip a tire, right? It's not like you need to be able to put 200 pounds on your back and run up a mountain with it. You don't need to do those things. So first of all, like if you equate it to the race course, like a lot of times, I think... I think it's easy. I got like, I don't know, four or five athletes who are like the muscly guys who want to do well at the sport and they're full of muscle. And they, you know, I think they would benefit from maybe losing a little bit of it because at some point it's wasted. Correct. Mm -hmm. Even, even a great chest and those nice pecs and abs are just, it doesn't matter if it's fat or muscle, it's just dead weight. Right. And it requires oxygen and it requires oxygen. That's a good point. So I think where I'm getting at with this is first, like if you're going to try to break this down, like, can you do what is required of you in a race with the strength you have? And is the strength you currently have overkill to the point where like, okay, like, do I need all of this? Right. Right. That's where I would start this. Like, I don't, I'm not talking from like a, from like, um, like an unhealthy relationship point. I'm purely talking like if you had just an objective look at your fitness and the race tasks at hand and what your body should do in order to perform its best. That's where I would start. That's where I've been starting as far as like, 
trying to govern my strength training. Um, it's not limiting calories. It's not increasing crazy amount of cardio. It's playing around with the, the formula already. So starting with that, do you need to be doing heavy five by fives at 450 pounds? If you're going to be flipping a 400 pound tire, which really only is two to 250 pounds of weight, because you're never fully lifting the whole thing off the ground. Like that's where I would, where would you start? Yeah. I like setting the floor. I like saying, what do I, what is my bare minimum for health? If I looked at it, what is my maximum weight or my, my minimum weight I could have to run fast? I'd probably be at like 145, 140. That's what an Olympic runners at six foot would be 135, 140. But that's not the way to set it. That's setting an extreme max. My my floor needs to be, what's the minimum I need to weigh to be extremely healthy and to be away from any of the danger zones? And for me, that's about 160. So right there, there's almost a 30 pound swing in just framing my question. Yeah. And then it's, what's the minimum I need to be able to lift? I think I should be able to deadlift 250. I think I should be able to single leg squat right around 185. I think I should be able to do 20 unbroken strict pull-ups minimum. Like these are the minimums that I think that I need for my performance. And by doing that and getting myself to the point where I can do all those things, I'm probably now up to 165 in my body weight. So that's, that's brought me up. And now everything I do brings me up away from my, my floor, which is 160 rather than what can I cut out now to whittle my way down? And then what do I need to be able to do in order to truly excel? Well, now some of those metrics have to go up a little bit. I want to be at 30 unbroken strict pull-ups, not 20. And that might add another half pound to me. And, and by doing those, everything I do adds a little bit more to my floor until I finally hit the point of now my running times have started to slow. Right. And now I've hit my ceiling. And so now I know this is my floor. This is my ceiling. This is all unquestionably healthy range for my body. And now I start playing around with performance metrics throughout that. Yeah. It's just tough to know until you know. Yeah. It is. You don't know until you know. And that's the thing with it. And how did I find 160? I got down to 160. Mm -hmm. I also got down to 150, 140, 139. At 139, I stopped being healthy. At 145, I was not healthy anymore. I was in the doldrums of training. So I knew that that I could run a one-off race very fast. I could run great workouts, but I wasn't sustainable there and I wasn't happy and I was in a fog all the time. So I know that that's not, that's not my number. When I was in Colorado, I got down to 162, 163, and I was very fast. I was also very healthy, but I was still losing time in strength areas. So I know that like 160 is about my lower, but 165, once I moved up and added those extra pieces in, now is 65, 66, 67. That was the best I've ever raced at. Okay. You know, I'm coming at this from the side of the coin where I'm like, am I too big to perform mm-hmm. my best, right? And I have to, we have to acknowledge the other side of the coin as well. You know, you have guys, for example, like an Ian Hosick who can deadlift a ton of weight. And he's like, I mean, he's one of the secret strong guys that we don't really give credit for his, you know, and, and VJ Jones with his lean body sorcery. Like, they can't be too strong. They're still, they, their physique, it's incredible the power that they can come up with for their physique. And, and, and I feel like they're in a different boat. And then you have the even further opposite end of the coin where you have guys like Ryan Woods when he first entered the sport. Um, guys like Rich Ryan when he first entered the sport. Rich Ryan ran 50-something in the 10-mile, the heaviest basically he's ever been, the most ripped he's ever been, and yet he was still performing. He light years ahead, like 20 pounds heavier than he was in college and is still running lifetime PRs. Ryan Woods put on like five, 10 pounds of muscle 
came out in 2018 as a completely different athlete. He showed up to San Jose that year looking like he had muscle bellies and mm -hmm. he hit CrossFit and he said, and he was running PRs for the most recent years then too. So there are both sides to this argument. Yes. Ryan Woods put on muscle and it was obvious. He looked like a beast. If you recall when he came out that, that first his coming out yep. party, he won the U S national series. He was heavier and he was faster. So that's why this is such a debate. Yes, it is. Where, I mean, it's like, I know there's a lot of people out there that waffle over this all the time. And it seems like men in general are more married to the strength work. I, I find I'd not, not always, but, and have a hard time letting it go for performance benefits. Right. Yeah. And your background, your background, true. what you come into the, if you come into the sport bulky, you're afraid to lose power. If you come into the sport lean and light, you're afraid to lose speed. Everyone's afraid to lose what they already have at the expense of gaining what they've never had. Mm. You can use them all the, as an example. You can use Woodsy as the example. You can use Hunter McIntyre as the example on the other end of the coin, and you can mm -hmm. probably feed whatever theory you would like, can't you? You can, because there's always an example of it that worked for somebody, but that somebody's not you. Yeah, and they've done a lot of more experimenting than you probably yes. understand. Um, so if you're in this position, first of all, if you are light, and but you're not quite sure if you are you know you're you're losing time whether it's a strength-based mountain race where you're uh, trail running for example or if it's a an ocr race and you know you're slipping on time you're the person like how strong is too strong or how not strong is not strong enough you're the person who i believe would really benefit from that experiment of like let's up the load and up the intensity and see if i can maintain my running form. i don't know how much more i have to add to that than that but i think that's a worthwhile experiment we've seen people make big jumps in our sport when they've done that. I've never seen somebody skinnier, we'll say, put on weight and muscle and perform worse. I've only seen it benefit. Can you think of anybody that you saw as like the quintessential runner put on muscle and then disappeared? No, I really can't think of it. And I mean, there's reasoning for it, but one of the big pieces that people miss is that we have the metrics we know and love, but they're not always the metrics that are most indicative of race performance. So you have someone who will say, well, my 5K time was 1420 in college and I put on 20 pounds of muscle and now I could probably only run 1450 or 15 flat. I have gotten worse, mm -hmm. but the 5K doesn't determine how well you're going to do in a obstacle race or a ultra or a mountain race or a trail race, because most of the time the terrain is not even allowing you to access that percentage of speed. But yeah. my question would be, what's your threshold sitting at? or what has happened to your 10 mile time? How has your descending changed? So you might've lost a percentage of 5K, but if you also gained a percentage of downhills, uphills, technical terrain, and ability to handle greater training load, that's a net gain. Same way a lifter, there's a, there's a guy I work with who is just very upset that he could no longer deadlift 500 pounds. It went down and he was like sitting at like 440, 450. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, that's still 200 more pounds than you'll ever need in this sport. So yes, your metric went down there, but your 5K dropped by 75 seconds. So do you think that maybe on course, you're now much faster? So it's, it's we always need to know our, our baseline benchmark, our metrics. Yeah. We always talk about that. But you also have to identify which metrics actually matter for the competition you're preparing for. Exactly. I want to use a personal story here okay. on the to gain weight side, because obviously I'm on the opposite end of this coin now. So it's very interesting. But um, and I know it's kind of a touchy subject, but I think it's worthwhile to just chat about, obviously. Yes. Um, 
when I was in college, I was an All-American at 152 to 154 pounds, right about 153, 5'10". I was the heaviest guy at my height by probably 5 or 10 pounds that could really run at all. Looking at us, I had just a little more weight on me of the fast guys, we will call it. By the time, that was my freshman year, I was an All-American. By the time I hit my senior year, and I started to deal with some health struggles, which I've talked about on here before, but I was down to 138 pounds. I was a kinesiology undergrad, exercise science. And we did a day where we did body fat testing and all different types. And <clears throat> I had a girl as my partner, and we did like a seven-site Jackson Pollock skinfold test. And I tested at 2.7% body fat and 138 pounds. And we reported to the professor, and he said, that can't be right. That's unhealthy. That can't be right. Professor did it on me. Got 2.3% body fat. The skin on top of your hand is what he was. Granted, I was just starting with some health struggles and, and that sort of affected, I think, my weight that way. I went back and looked at my metrics, how fast I was running, where my performances lied. My PRs all came in the 150s. And as I lost weight, even in a pure running sport, my times went down. I had too little body. I barely had essential body fat. I'm sure my testosterone levels were in the dirt. I'm sure that I had other metabolic and hormonal markers that weren't weren't working quite well. And I performed significantly less. When I got my body fat back up to like even a five or 6%, everything felt better. I had cellular energy and I performed so much better in the 150s. So no doubt. I mean, I got, geez, I got seven to eight seconds slower in the 1500. Like by the time end of junior and senior year rolled around at a leaner weight. And that's an eternity. You know, I didn't perform my best going out at a lighter weight. So for those of you who are scared to gain weight, I would, I would highly encourage you, if you know you're on the lean side, you'd be surprised what your body feels like when it has enough to it. And I recovered yeah. better after efforts, much better when I was heavier. That's one piece that people miss out on is the recovery aspect. The stronger you are, the better you handle pounding. Haven't you noticed that? The, I say, I think the one thing about weighing more is I recover faster and better. I got more body fat on me too than I ever have, I think, in my life. And I'm recovering much better. I think I talked about this one time, but a, uh, a well-known and um, highly respected uh, boxing and MMA coach and nutritionist recommends that his fighters stay above 13 to 15% body fat in between fights. Wow. That seems high. And I think the lowest I've heard him talk about is 11. And it's because they get injured less in training. I believe it. That the constant slams against the cage or the wall or the ground, all the grappling, all the impact, they just wear it better when they have more padding. And not just like, I'm not talking external padding the way people joke about, oh, you got some padding going this winter. But the actual intracellular padding you have as well when you're not depleted on every level. And it's a different sport, but the concept remains that he's not asking people to be obese, but he's asking people to not be in a debt all the time because you can't fight multiple fronts in a war. No. You can't fight the extreme calorie debt and the energy loss and the cellular energy loss and the pounding that you're taking from the ground and the exertion that you're taking from the workout and the volume that you have of training. You just can't fight all those fronts at once, especially for a long time. Eventually something has to give. And when you say, all right, I'm giving on the calorie side and I'm giving on the extra energy I'm expending trying to just repair my body because I'm in debt, suddenly you can put more energy into the other fronts of your war. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. My, my story mirrors your own, Kirk. And for a while, I was worried about my weight coming out of college because I told the story in this last episode where I graduated at my fastest, but I, I was running a 16, uh, 39, 5k. 
which is fast for mortals, and it is very slow for someone who's running a 414 mile. Right. So it just doesn't compute. And I thought maybe just all this high intensity training I'd done, and we lifted a lot at Whitewater, it's just too much. I can't run distance off this. And a couple of years later, I ran 1542 off two more pounds of weight. And so it just went to show that it wasn't the weight. It was the engine that was built up behind it. And that yeah. gets me to what I wanted to say next, which is that people oftentimes use cycling as their justification for wanting to strip away pounds. Because they say, look at cyclists. All they do is weigh everything. Every component that they can strip down, they strip down. Every ounce of body fat they can take off, they take off because they know that if they can keep their power up and their weight down, their power to weight ratio is all that truly matters. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. Except that it doesn't apply from running to cycling because no, cyclists no. don't take any impact. And if you look at their bodies, their butts and quads look like sprinters and their upper body looks like a figure skater mm -hmm. because they don't need it and they don't use it for anything. I just find it funny not to just sidetrack with like um, the biking thing, but like you'll, you'll buy like a, a $60 carbon fiber water bottle holder. That is mm -hmm. an eighth of an ounce lighter than a traditional plastic water bottle holder. And then you'll put a pound and a half of water in, in the water <laughs> bottle and stick it in there. It's so ironic how many things happen uh, in the Viking world. And so I want to continue this analogy with that. It's okay. that people obsess over it in cycling. But if you look at those guys, they can't do anything but cycle. They walk strange. They stand with weird posture. Everything's been morphed around the bike. Yep. And that's where a lot of this doesn't apply to us regular people is because the more finely tuned you get, the less you can do. You can do one task and one task only. And those guys are always injured as well. When they crash, they break. They do. Now they're going fast. But you and I have crashed going fast. Mm -hmm. And we didn't break the same way. Ryan Atkins has crashed going faster than you and I will ever go. And he doesn't break the same way. And it's because... He is not so finely tuned frail that he can't do anything else in this world. And then you take a look at components. People will argue, well, yeah, that's a human being. But in components, if you just want to look at it into a vacuum, you don't ride Tiagra and you don't ride 105, you know, or Altegra. The pros ride Durace and that's it. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, but they also get it for free and they have a team of mechanics behind them because everyone seems to know that Shimano 105 group set is your bang for your buck group set. Yep. It gives you most of the performance of Dura-Ace with a little bit more weight, and it'll last you a decade. Dura-Ace is extremely light, but it gets knocked out of alignment really easily. Yeah. When you have an Olympic training center behind you and your body gets knocked out of alignment, it supports you. When you're working your office job and your body gets knocked out of alignment, it now costs you and you can't train the next day. So my point of all this is you want 105 group set. You want the group set that is giving you all the bang for your buck power-wise of the crazy light stuff without the drawbacks of the crazy heavy stuff, but you're at your most durable. There's going to be a lot of people who don't know road biking components that are going to be scratching their heads. And there'll be some that really know it and are going to argue me on this, but I'm going to die on this hill. That's fine. It's like, that's so silly. And then we'll move on from that biking thing. But like, it's like, just take a good poop in the morning and you've outlost all the weight of the poop. <laughs> you, you know, like it's so it's splitting hairs, but I guess, you know, you shave your legs and you're 10 seconds faster over a 20 mile time trial. 10 seconds might be the difference between winning and losing. You shaved your leg. Yep. And Cartley, and we can take it even further. You can talk the frame, the carbon fiber frames. Well, the higher tech the carbon fiber is, the lighter it is. 
and the more you cannot ding that. There's carbon fiber bikes you can dump on the ground and you'll it's going to be okay. And there are some that you scratch against a brick side and it's going to destroy the carbon weave. Yeah. So again, if you have a team behind you and you can absorb a $15,000 cost because the team will cover it, you don't care about durability. But if you're you and I, and we want to be able to ride our bike every day, you get yourself a frame set that you can, you can fall over on and you're going to be okay. <laughs> and that's the same way our bodies are. So again, I think we don't ask how light can we go? We ask how strong can we get without getting slower? Yes. That was a good analogy too, Bracken. We were due for one from you. I was slacking recently. That, that was good. Uh, so let's, okay. So I think it was important that we went down that side of this whole conversation which is not how I began this conversation, no. right? Um, and I think you did a good job of explaining it. I think we explored that enough. And I think you just look to those who have done it and are still performing well. And and I think there's more time to be made up by potentially getting a little stronger in your areas of weakness than there is to be lost in the running detriment that you might feel due to increased strength. Mm -hmm. um, on the other side of the coin, okay, let's say position that I am in or hunters in every season, he like gets himself too big and then he cuts down 10 or 15 pounds and he, he cycles through. Um, and part of that goes back to that, that, uh, MMA theory too, mm -hmm. boxer theory. It's kind of what Hunter's doing in a sense, right? Yeah. He just draws it out longer. He has his fight camp weight and then his, his fight day weight. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that dieting is, is the necessary ticket. I don't think that completely cutting out strength is the, the right, um, answer either. I think what you do is you scale what you are doing. I think you try to, you try to do this naturally. For example, in 2018, 2019, one of the two, when I was coming off injury, I got up to about this weight, lifting a lot of weights, getting strong. And then by the time Tahoe came, I was down like 10 or 12 pounds for my heaviest. And the training that I did slowly but surely took some weight off and I and it all came together as it should, right? So you, you want to let your training speak for itself in my sense, which means as Rich Ryan pointed out, you're right. Your endurance training doesn't budge. You keep on your schedule and that cannot be second fiddle to your strength work. It must be first fiddle, so to speak. And then with the strength work, you know, if you know you're strong enough, like I know I'm strong enough, I'm more strong than I need to be to do half the shit we do. And you probably are too, Bracken, right? Probably. One, um, you can lower the um, just general amount of weight that you're throwing around the gym, like you had mentioned. Like just, you don't need to be that strong. Well, then still practice the movements that make you, you know, happy, but just back it off a little bit. And then two, adding things more into higher tempo, more race sim type wads and metcons is going to translate to functionality. So picking up the pace, maybe picking up the rest, picking up the tempo, or decreasing rest, sorry. Um, and just going through more like race practical motions. Because again, if you're a guy that's too strong and too big, you have all the foundations been laid. You don't need to keep laying bricks if you know you've got a solid foundation. You need to start building the walls, right? Build that, build that house up to perform. And so that's the theory I'm going to be going with is the, I've stopped you know, most of the big lifts, more single uh, or multi-plane motion and things like that. And then hopefully as you get healthy, and you run more volume, it just happens. I don't know how much more of a conscious effort it should be. I'm not even telling you to be in the gym less than you currently are. And I'm not saying to have less strength training sessions even, just maybe switching how they go and do things that are gonna transfer to the race course more than a 500 pound deadlift, which I hate to tell you, it doesn't. It just doesn't. Yeah. So that's where I start. I agree. And the more race specific 
your movement gets, the harder it is to put on mass or maintain mass with it. You know, you cannot get as big doing single leg balance uh, deadlifts as you can off two-legged deadlifts. Correct. It's just, you can't, you can't stress yourself the same way. And so switching to single leg work, power output work, uh, that TRX, um, you know, hip thrust knee drive you were doing on mm -hmm. your video the other day, that's something that is, you can directly take the power you have and pair it to on-course work. And that cannot, that cannot drive hypertrophy. It just won't. No, it won't. I, and you know, I, I switched my approach from like heavy five by fives and stuff like that about four weeks ago. And I'm down about three, four pounds. I haven't decreased my sessions. I haven't, I've spent just as much time in the gym. I've just changed my focus and that might be enough. I may be answering my own question there. The other thing, and I know a few of you I'm going to be talking to here without knowing it. And it is shocking. It is shocking. The number of you guys and girls out there who go hit the gym three, four or five days a week and do strength work, but you leave your legs out of the equation because you don't want to get them tired for running or they're still tired from running. And you end up with all this top heavy muscle that's kind of just bullshit fluff that you don't really need and doesn't translate. So the other side of that also for me, and I think others should be like, I'm putting as much lower focus right now as I am on upper, getting rid of the chest that I don't need, you know, and things like that. And I think a lot of people fall into that trap as well. Again, I notice more men in particular, but I'm sure there's plenty of women out there. Like you're, you're leaving the legs alone and then you're building all this upper body muscle, which is just I, in my opinion, at some point going to just be weighing you down to a detriment. And now you're carrying around this with legs that are a little imbalanced raw strength wise. And that's a trap that we fall into as runners very, very often. Don't want to mess up our run. Don't want to compromise or retired. So we just stick to the upper and yeah, you need to work your upper, of course, but, um, that's just something of note, like backing off doesn't mean, I don't know, like you still have to look at your entire body. That's all I'm trying to say. For sure. Yeah. Getting more holistic means that you move away from any one area of imbalance. Exactly. And it still allows you to keep the confines of what are my baseline metrics I have to keep. And you keep an eye on those throughout. You just keep testing and you keep checking in on things. And as long as you stay within your accepted range, you're fine. Dropping your squat doesn't matter. Dropping your weighted pull-ups doesn't matter. Dropping your mile time or, or slowing your mile time doesn't matter until you reach your, okay, now I've actually gotten worse. And then you've answered your question, how big is too big or how small is too small? I agree. I think endurance athletes, OCR athletes, um, we're analytical. We are probably more in touch with our bodies than most on this planet because we sit inside them every day and out on the roads and trails and the weight room and, the, and all of that. And so I trust that most of you listening and myself included and you Bracken are intuitive athletes. Like you, your gut's usually right with these things, right? And you're probably going to be able to start to feel the difference in, um, let's say the strength to weight ratio and based on performance. Like if you just start listening to the cues, I think you'll probably end up having your answers. Not everybody has decades of comparatives on, mm -hmm. on the weight front and, and experimental training protocols, but I think you, your gut's probably if your gut's telling you something, it's probably right. Like I would benefit from hitting the weight room and deadlifting a little more because the bucket carry kills me. Or if you're in my, you know, boat, I go to climb on my incline trainer and I'm like, whew, I'm like 0.2 or 0.3 miles per hour slower now than I was at a lighter and fitter weight, knowing that, you know, that is a metric I can measure and I can feel. So, yeah, I don't know. I feel like people can make the judgment call. I don't know how much more, how much more is there to add to this conversation? I think there is, one more thing we can add, 
we've semi talked about it, but we haven't actually given actionable advice for how you do cut off weight a little bit. If you actually identify that that's what I need to do and that my relationship with food and calories and weight is not an emotional based one mm -hmm. and I can do it safely. So how do you actually go about it? Everyone knows a calorie de deficit is what is needed, but my take is that the quickest way and the healthiest way to do it is let your training melt it off. Like you already talked about. Yep. And what I like to do is I like to raise my volume slightly, but then I like to add in frequency. I found that the single quickest way and healthiest way for me to just move down single digit pounds, which has to happen sometimes, coming off surgery, it had to happen. I added extra 15 to 20 minute sessions three times a week in the evening or in the morning, opposite of whatever my normal workout was. And immediately it was like three or four pounds just kind of melt off over the course of a couple of weeks and my energy levels don't change. My eating probably gets better because I'm having to fuel twice in a day rather than only for one workout. But adding mm -hmm. frequency is really key for a lot of people. It's not that you just have to add hours to the end of each session. You can just rev the engine one more time, 15 minutes in the PM. Um, are you talking like low grade, like aerobic work or did, are you not being specific? Not even being specific, but I generally start with two or three spin or jog sessions in the evening, just 15 or 20 minutes. And then if I have room for strength work, then I'll do a higher end circuit or something like that. But just turning the car on twice per day mm. seems to get me more than turning it on once per day, even if that once I drive for longer. Yeah. It's that the startup sense. process burns the most gas. It's every time you accelerate burns the most gas. Once you're up to speed and moving, it's not as it's not as as uh, effective. I found you're just putting more wood on the metabolic fire, like putting yeah. wood on it twice a day instead of instead of once. I think there's a lot of merit to that. And I approach that before I will cut out calories. Well, my, my approach is let volume speak for itself and do the work and don't change anything with your nutrition and then change the type of strength work you are doing if you are looking to cut and vice versa. If you need to gain weight, more calories and, and potentially, you know, not doing that second session if it's not a lot of bang for your buck. But anyways, um, and then if I do tinker with diet, you know, we're walking a very fine line. Yes, we are. Just a quick shift in your, in your carb to fat ratio increase your fat a little bit more and decrease your carbs just a little bit more. And I'm not talking like, like crazy, um, but just a shift. You might not even make a much of a caloric shift as much as a macro shift within your calories. Um, I find that people can feel pretty good. Trim up just a little bit on that, like, uh, and, and do it in a really healthful manner. And, you know, as we know, fat fuels a lot of our performance, especially our aerobic work, You'd be getting plenty of carbs still for your high end work. And so, that shift would be number three, which I'm not even approaching right now. Yeah, uh, I'm just the lifting and being able to do more volume slowly as, as I get healthier. Um, yeah. Kind of prescription. At no point today have we talked about cutting out calories. Have we talked about restricting? We're talking you no. increase your training or you get steady and consistent with your training. You increase frequency. You shift from power lifting into more high intensity, less rest, maybe even circuit based. And if you're doing the opposite end of the spectrum, you just do the opposite effect. You remove yeah. doubles, you add more power work, and you invest into the workouts rather than start saving and skimming money from your caloric needs. Yeah, I have an athlete, uh, Sam. Sam, if you're listening, he's got his uh, first 100 miler in two weeks. And he posed the question to me, or three weeks, he posed the question to me saying, um, you know, I'm feeling a little heavy. I'm at X amount of weight. And I just know logically to carry that extra over a hundred miles is probably to my detriment. 
I'm thinking of cutting weight or trying to cut weight in these last few weeks. What do you think? And he was just posing the question. And I said, no, I said, my goodness, do you know what, like that shift in, in caloric difference could just do to your training and lead up and how you physiologically are going to feel regardless as to, you know, like tinkering with things like that when it comes close to race day is also like a very, I think it's a recipe for disaster. I think you go in a little under fueled and sure you lost two pounds, but you're on a physiological level. Um, you're a little depleted and you're going to run significantly worse because of that than what is a measly two or three pounds. So you also have to work with it timing wise. It's not something you want to experiment. If you're like, I do need to lighten up. I got too much muscle. You're right. I don't need to be squatting 400 pounds. Yeah. Well, I don't know if leading into Jacksonville, if you're racing is necessarily the right time, but maybe taking the time after that, because it will be an experiment. Like we said about listening to our bodies, understanding how it, how they react, respond. So you have to take that into consideration too, which is one of the major reasons like right now, I'm not, I'm not going to change any of that because I know how my body performs on the fuel I'm putting in it. And if you mess that, you tinker with the formula. So don't do that. Yeah. You can. yeah. Kirk, we talked about my weight from the start where I was 170 pound, 167, 170 pound racer. Mm-hmm. I moved up to 181 for high rocks. I moved back down to 70, 72 afterwards. And then after surgery, I was back up to 181. Mm-hmm but without high rocks training, without lifting. And my goal was to get back down to my race weight. And I moved down quickly. I got down to 172 again. And then suddenly I found myself back up to 74. And I've been sitting 74, 75 now the past few weeks after being 72, 73, you know, post-workout 69 or 70. Yeah. And I didn't understand it. And I went back through this weekend and I just kind of like pulled the blanket of training up around me to keep me warm and comfortable. And it told me that I'm faster than I was at 172 right now. Yeah. My body wants to lose a little bit more weight based off my training's been going up. It's going to, but I'm not going to mess with it before Jacksonville because I'm feeling good walking around. Like when I run up the steps right now, I feel light and springy mm-hmm. just up and down the stairs at my house. And everyone knows that feeling that I get out of a car and I either groan to get up or I feel good getting up. I'm feeling good doing all those things. Yeah. And so there is, does the scale say I'm not at my fastest race weight. Yes. Does my training log say it? No. And that's where we can't have that emotional attachment to it. We just have to say, I'm emotionally attached to my training log. And it's telling me, I like you right now, Bracken. (laughs) You're just fine. Stay with it. Don't screw with me because then I'm going to mess with you. That training log is the single most comforting thing that you can go back and look at and do for yourself in times of doubt whether it is in relation to your weight and strength or your run performance, you go back and you just go one page at a time and you go, aha, there's a deposit in my account. There's a deposit in my bank account. All this had purpose. Hopefully your training and your log, you look back and it all says it has purpose. And then you go, you're right. I'm where I should be right now for, for what I've been doing. I agree with that. And I will say when you were flexing for me the other day, yeah, um, you look really lean. You look lean, <laughs> fit, and strong, Bracken. So I agree with you. That's a funny. That's a funny phrase. You know, when, when you were flexing for me the other day, what were you doing in that chair, Bracken? For me, you were flexing for me. I was. This is what happened. This is what happened, guys. Is I took my shirt off to to model the other running public shirts to Bracken, and he got jealous. I popped mine and, right off and ripped his own shirt off and just started flexing for me. I was doing it out of you know I had to to get a different shirt on Bracken. You had didn't have to. I felt like I was sitting here. Sitting up on my roost and another rooster flew by and was threatening my my hen house. I was strutting. I was strutting around in front of you. Yeah. So I had to puff my feathers up. Well, I was impressed. I would have approached with 
confidence, but caution if I had to come up and butt heads with getting get a wrestling match. So, I mean, long story short, I am six pounds to seven pounds heavier than what I would have identified as my ideal Jacksonville weight. Okay. But my training log saying it's not broke. Don't fix it. You are going to be healthy on race day. You're going to be there. All of your fitness is going to be available to you. And yep. so that's what I'm following. Not the scale, my training log. You know, what's funny about this is we're approaching an hour bracken and we haven't given an answer. And I think that's exactly how this thing ends is there is no right answer, right? There is no right answer. It's worth looking into. It's worth thinking about not at a detriment to your emotional health or uh, any emotional attachment you have to something, but it's a worthwhile conversation. Yeah. Health, happiness, performance in that order is how I frame my body weight. 100%. I know what my baseline is. I know what my ceiling is. And I know that throughout there, those are the three pieces I manipulate, but they can't get out of order. They can just have different precedence level in different parts of my season. But if you stay with health first, health first, and performance is your caboose and you it keeps the train chugging along, but it's always following the direction of health, your answer is your answer and it's the correct answer. Health always leads the way. I think that's just that's what that's what has to be said. Yeah. And the and the other should follow. The the rest should follow, right? Yeah, it's when you put performance as your engine and health as the caboose that you get off track. Yeah. You can't steer with performance. You steer with health. Yeah. I uh, I think we dove into enough little avenues today, Bracken. We're going to get a lot of questions off this. A lot of messages. It's it's blurry. It's blurry for me and I'm a health professional that's been in this industry for how long? Who cares about top end for performance and also health? I just don't think. That's the point. Any mm -hmm. coach who will tell you it is black and white, here is what your race weight is, or here's the only way to approach it, is going to get you injured or worse. And any health professional who will say this is the only way to get there is scamming you. No. So you have to, this has to be a gray area because it determines <laughs> what your health is your long-term health. And that changes every day. It changes every week and it changes from person to person. So I'm glad that you as a health professional don't have a one size fits all because you can't. No, it's impossible. Then I've danced around this for, you know, a decade or two with athletes and clients and we'll continue to do so because it's so individualistic. And that's why there can't be steadfast rules other than put your health first. Yep. But I think go check out the runningpublic.com and see if you can buy shirts, guys. I don't have an answer for you right now, but go quantities are limited. So go. Just like nutrition, I have no answer for you. <laughs> Bracken, you got like, I don't know, what, 20 hours to figure it out? 20 hours and counting. All right. Tick, 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 Bracken. Mm -hmm.